Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Howdy, everyone. This is Eric. First things first, a quick podcast plug. If you're a history nerd, you might already know that the early modern period in Europe saw these just seismic shifts in society. It was this very short period where everything from warfare to art really radically changed. And there's a podcaster I really like named Ben Jacobs, who has a podcast called Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. And he uses is a very compelling story-based narrative style to talk about the Protestant Reformation. He brings in a lot of humor. He's really engaging and... I've had a lot of fun listening to it and learning about how Europe was brought out of the medieval period and into the modern one. So definitely go check it out. You can find it on the Agora Podcast Network. You can find it on your favorite podcast catcher at Wittenberg to Westphalia. Enjoy. So welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Reconsider, and today we're going to be doing a follow-up on our last episode about the FARC peace deal in Colombia. Now, before we get started, I just want to ask everyone if you've liked our podcast so far, which hopefully if you've made it this far, uh, you do like it, to go rate us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your podcatcher is. What it does is it increases our rankings so that when people are looking for good stuff about politics and news, they're more likely to find us and more people can get to enjoy what you're enjoying. So thanks in advance and we'll get started. So the last show we did was on this FARC peace deal. And if you've been following the story, those results have now come in. And while pollsters had initially predicted a two to one yes vote in favor of ratifying the current version of the peace agreement. It was two to one in favor of yes. The no vote prevailed, and it prevailed by really a crazy thin margin. 50.2% for no, 49.8% for yes. So yeah, just inserting my opinion here a little bit, when I saw that vote, I just had this moment of like, oh, this doesn't seem to be representing consensus, right? Like 0.4% in a nationwide vote where it's, sometimes it's like hard to get out to the polls and such. It just doesn't seem to represent the country going, yes, this is what we want. And sometimes I think maybe when it's that close, I mean, maybe you just have a mulligan. You just have a mulligan and you say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to go back and think about it, talk about it, and... Give, give this another shot in a couple of weeks or something, just because if it's that close, the country is split. They don't want one thing. They're not sure what they want. So that's my thought. 
But back on track. So this outcome, of course, was a shocking surprise given that it had you know this very comfortable close to two to one margin. It's been compared, of course, to Brexit for a few reasons. One, of course, being that it was a direct vote, didn't come from representatives. So this is a modern-day example of direct democracy, which we talked about in episode two about demagogues. Second, pollsters moderately to heavily favored one outcome, and they got it wrong in both cases. And then third, both of them, for both of them, the losing side had the support of the popular media. So newspapers were endorsing one thing, and they got another one altogether. And the newspaper's opinions seem to correlate with poll numbers. So we're not sure what this means, especially given that there are only two of these. But it's an interesting pattern to emerge from this. Yeah, so as Eric mentioned, we discussed this concept of direct democracy and how it can be influenced in times of crises back in episode three on demagogues. And we're going to get back at the end of this episode into a bit of sort of like a philosophical discussion about how to think about direct democracy and its role in today's world with the slate of challenges that we currently face. So polls are increasingly playing an important role in how we think about the political process. And you really, you don't really need to look any further than 538, which is a political media outlet. And 538 really pioneered the concept of using meta-analyses of various opinion polls, at least in a mass media context. So the idea of a meta-analysis is you aggregate a bunch of different polls, and as you add more and more and more, the variation of uncertainty or error goes down and the, and the meta-analysis polls get more accurate. However, and this is the part of these sorts of analyses that become a little bit more difficult to internalize, which is that a probability of, for example, one presidential candidate or another winning, it's, it's a measure of uncertainty. And it's really hard to have a solid grasp on the degree of this uncertainty in one particular case or another. And it's, it's, even kind of hard to have a solid grasp on the concept of uncertainty unless you have a pretty solid grounding in, in statistics. Now, back to 538. To, to their credit, I think they try to explain uncertainty in as clear and sort of a layperson sense as possible. And I, I think they do a good job on their website, their blog, and their podcast repeatedly stressing that their predictions are an indication of likelihood and not a statement of certainty. But even for professional politicians, this concept of uncertainty can be difficult to fully internalize. And this can lead to overconfidence, as with President Santos in Colombia, who basically was all but assured that the, uh, the yes vote was going to prevail, and David Cameron with Brexit, although the polls did slim more towards the end with Brexit as Cameron went on this offensive. Yeah, and I think that the public's perception of poll accuracy, or in particular meta-poll accuracy, was skewed in particular in, in 2008 and 2012 when Nate Silver really nailed it on the presidential elections then. And people said, oh man, we, we have a very good sense of what this stuff is going into this, because um, he called... I think every state in 2008 and almost every state in 2012. And so I think it may have been the case that given this, people said that they 
you know, that these metapoles are very reliable and they can trust them going in. And it's possible politicians got fooled by that as well. But as we learn more about how polling works, we can see that this uncertainty uh, becomes a major factor into it. And so the way generally that sampling works for a poll is that, of course, it's, it's impossible to poll 100% of a multi-million person population. So instead, we take a sample. And sometimes this is hundreds or maybe a couple thousand people if it's really ambitious. And the assumption here, of course, is that this is a fairly random sample and that a fairly random sample is fairly representative of the entire population. And the more that this sample happens to be representative, the more likely it's going to be correct. Now, as you can imagine, of course, these samples are not always representative of the entire population. And you might ask yourself, well, why aren't they representative of the wider population? Take a big enough number. It, it should kind of get there, right? Well, sampling is really hard. It's very difficult to obtain a truly representative sample of voters. It's also difficult to figure out how to structure how you take your sample. And in fact, there are you know, PhD courses taught on this, and there are professors who specialize in methodology of which figuring out how to sample in a particular way is a big part of the focus. So this is not by any means easy to do. What can lead to some of the difficulties inherent in finding a good sample? Well, people might not answer questions correctly, for example, or they may feel social pressure to keep a non-majority opinion to themselves. This may have happened in Colombia, where a lot of no supporters thought that they would be seen as opposing peace when instead they were really just opposed to, or many of them at least, were simply opposed to the current structure of the peace agreement, which they felt gave too much impunity and too much, uh, well, too much impunity to certain FARC members and not sufficient punishments for what they saw as war crimes in some cases. Yeah, and, that, and it may seem odd to lie to some random pollster calling you. Like, why would you Why would you not tell that person you're never going to see them again? But it's probably just this very human thing that when a person is asking you something, social dynamics take over due to our evolutionary history. And, and we, you know, our brains sort of assume that everyone talking to us is probably someone in our clan. And we're going to have to deal with the consequences long term there. This is pure speculation on my part. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to come back to this concept of how some of these biases can actually unconsciously influence how we interact socially. But first, what, what are some other examples that can kind of like mess up a sample? Well, people who are least likely to be contacted will necessarily be or will very likely be underrepresented in some of these samples. So what do I mean by this? Well, for example, people who live in rural or difficult to contact areas, maybe where there is really very little or no access to internet, maybe phone lines are scarce, so information travels more slowly, these people might be underrepresented in the polls. Another aspect of sampling that can uh, affect who's most and least likely to be contacted while these polls are being conducted has been the switch from landlines to cell phones, which apparently makes it more difficult for polling firms to find truly random samples that are uh, representative of all voters. I think it's, it's more, and I'm going to forget which, but it's, it's either easier to get a random sampling of landline telephones or cell phones, but I think it was landlines. So that's why it's yeah. more difficult. Yeah, it's landlines. Uh, people with landlines are more likely to pick up from a number that they don't see, and people with cell phones, when they see one that they don't recognize, 
they tend to look at it and go, they can leave a message. And so, hey, if you're uh, if you're listening and you live in, say, the United States and you've been getting a abnormal, you know, maybe in a swing state, and you've been getting an abnormally large number of calls from numbers you don't know and not answering them, they may be trying to pull you. <laughs> and if you're wondering why you haven't been pulled, that may be the reason. It may not be true, but that could be a thing. And so with all these difficulties... Pollsters, they've done their statistics, and I've taken some basic statistics, and and one of the ways they try to make up for this sampling problem is that they will ask people questions about themselves to understand their demographics. So, like, what party you're part of. They kind of know where you live already, if you're rural or urban. They tend to vote differently. I mean, it could be your ethnic and racial demographics, man or woman, age, stuff like that. And what they do is they try to weight or skew things from their sample to the overall population. So, for example... If, like, only five millennials picked up the phone compared to 500 old people, they'll weight the answers of the millennials more to try to uh, fit it to the amount of millennials that are in the likely voting population, which, uh, let me tell you, is also a pretty tough thing to figure out on its own. So they they try to do that. Let me tell you. (laughs) <laughs> Let me tell you, not easy. Uh, I've done I've done a bit of this stuff in school, and it is not you're you're definitely like licking your finger and putting it up to the wind. <clears throat> no, it's true. Um, and one of the things that we talked about earlier was the fact that like people might not answer honestly, and there's this concept called the spiral of silence, uh, which has come up by Elizabeth Noel Neumann. And, and her theory of the spiral of science goes something like this, right? People don't like being socially isolated. And so what we do is we look around and we see others' behavior to figure out which opinions are socially acceptable or not. So this is probably part of why, like, if you live in a rural district and you go visit your family in an urban one or vice versa, you may find that sort of like everyone around has totally different opinions from the people that you are used to. Um, and this is a very natural human phenomenon is that our opinions tend to homogenize to the people that are around us. And so when you believe that your opinion is going to socially isolate you, you hide it. And on the other hand, people uh, who hold opinions that they believe are the majority opinions, they're more likely to speak out loudly and publicly. And so the the actual number of people who support an issue doesn't isn't the thing that sets off the silent spiral. It's about perception. So if you uh, think that you're in the minority, you're more likely to be quiet. So, from Noel Neumann, quote, The opinion of a minority may actually be perceived as a majority opinion if their partisans act assertively enough. Uh, If you're looking at the presidential election now, you may be able to recount a few examples of this. And, of course, fear of social isolation usually occurs subconsciously. You know, people aren't going to be aware of it. And that produces bias into polls because people don't even know that they're really hiding their opinion. And so the spiral of science, of course, is not usually set off by consensus opinions. So, for example, if you ask people if they think, I don't know, women should vote, like most people would be like, yeah, sure. But uh, it tends to happen with controversial issues when you believe that your view is in the minority and therefore unpopular, you're more likely to stay silent. So we've got a link with a more in-depth description of this if you want to learn more about the concept. It's at our site, reconsidermedia.com, and you can just go to the podcast link and find our post. So why else can a poll be wrong? Well, in addition to having the, all of these issues with sampling and biases that can be 
present in them. There's also the issue of who even comes out to vote. And while you can try to estimate that the entire population is made up of some percentage of millennials or another, it's very hard to know if 80% of those are going to show up on election day or if 30% are. You can kind of benchmark from year to year, but they can really change quite a bit. So when trying to predict who exactly comes out, and let Unless there have been some similar votes in the past. So for presidential candidates, we have you know a new benchmark every four years to kind of measure on a continual basis. But if there have been no similar prior referendums, especially because referendums are so issue-specific, it's very hard to know who in a population is really going to be motivated to show up on the day to vote. Therefore, pollsters need to make assumptions about voter turnout that could very well be wrong. And, you know, who votes depends on a lot of things. It may be the case that when there's, you know, a big lead in the polls for one side or another, the side that's currently winning gets a little complacent, you know, says, ah, we're, we're ahead by such a wide margin, I don't need to show up to vote that day. There can also be issues of, you know, acts of God, where big earthquakes, terrible storms, stuff like that, that may prevent a certain regional demographic from showing up, which could swing the vote one way or another. And this may have happened in Colombia with the FARC peace deal vote because Hurricane Matthew was passing along Colombia's Caribbean regions, and that may have motivated enough people to stay home, some analysts are saying, to influence the vote. Yeah, one of the other big factors is that anger or revulsion of the status quo in particular may influence voter turnout in a way that it didn't last time. So, you know, if you look at, for example, the U.S. election in 2012, it was Obama versus Romney, and it was a, you know, comparatively pretty calm affair. And now there's a lot more anger and more fear. And at the end of the day, it is it is emotions that drive many people to go to the polls. And so when votes are driven by anger or disgust to the system, it introduces new uncertainty because you can't use the same benchmarks of, oh, the likelihood of vote of a particular group or a person is going to be similar to what was last time. Pollsters often are stuck just making that assumption, um, but they can't know for certain. And so, uh, you know, we can think about what this might say about the U.S. election. Um, and obviously, it's not a direct referendum like Colombia or Brexit was, but we definitely saw a lot of anger and revulsion, uh, resentment in both of those cases, and it may have driven higher turnout. Um, and we do have to think about whether referendum polls are less predictable than other types of votes, particularly for representatives or leaders. Uh, we don't actually know. Uh, Xander has diligently tried to do the research on this. And uh, there, there seems to be, if, if there's research about it uh, that we can find, it's hidden. So, hey, if anyone listening to this is an electoral politics nerd uh, and you know about this stuff, we'd love to hear about it. You can tweet us uh, at... Reconsider Pod, or you can go to our Facebook page, also Reconsider Pod, or leave a comment. Uh, definitely let us know what you're thinking. So, shockingly, there doesn't seem, at least at first pass, to be a ton of information about how referending polling, polling can, can differ in, in accuracy than non referendum voting, where, where you're like voting for a candidate or a political party. But we, we could have missed it, so let us know. What we could find were some commentary by different pollsters, people who work at these polling companies. So according to someone at Ipsos, which is a polling company, with a referendum polling, it's it's very difficult to figure out who exactly is going to show up for the vote. Cliff Young, president of U.S. Public Affairs at Ipsos, claimed that 
The polling overestimated the number of young voters that were going to turn out for Brexit and the overall enthusiasm for the vote with the FARC, which led to the very low voter turnout. So someone else, Joshua Dyke, a public opinion specialist from the University of Massachusetts, Lowell, commented in a recent Vox article that referendums are, quote, among the hardest things to poll accurately, since voters tend to be more unpredictable on issue elections than on those that have to do with parties or an individual candidate. Yeah, because it turns out that with parties, they've been around for a while. You have at least a good idea of what they stand for. Uh, and o- you've had many, many years to sort of settle into how you feel about what they're going for, whereas with a referendum, it's a single decision. And so your voting patterns can't be as easily determined based on past data, because there is none. We can take this knowledge and we can start looking at the Columbia case specifically. We want to understand like what drove the, the very big miss here in the polls for the FARC peace deal. You know, some people believe that there was this social aspect to this, um, so that spiral of science, that those who supported no didn't speak up, again, even to pollsters who were calling them, because they'd be seen as not supporting peace, and everyone loves peace. Peace is good. In Colombia, what's interesting, the polls weren't updated the week before the vote, and they may have missed a, uh, an updated shift in public opinion. And a big reason was that the Colombian government did this on purpose to avoid influencing the vote outcome. But it may have backfired because there wasn't data from the last week to lean on. So uh, the president may have sort of under pushed in that last week to get out the yes vote and may have left pro-peace voters with this sense of inevitability and complacency that they saw from the last two to one vote. So it may have just suppressed their outcome overall. And a problem that could have also happened in Colombia was the issue of even understanding what that broader population is that we talked about a little bit earlier. So this guy, Sergio Berenstein, uh, who surveys public opinion in Latin America, recently said that in developing nations, outdated census data present polling firms with another hurdle. In many of these countries, the demographic data is flawed. Yeah. And in particular, if you look at Colombia, there's so many people displaced by the war and many people living off the grid, in particular, if they are if they support FARC and FARC seemed pretty pro peace deal. These guys were out, you know, sort of off the grid and out uh, in the edges of society. So it was like harder to get a sense of what that demographic data looked like and therefore harder to skew or pivot or weight the polls that they got to represent the real population. And finally, some Colombians may have become quite upset that there was this thing called a, a signing party held, and it was with great pomp and circumstance just before the vote happened. And it was it was designed to get people really excited about peace. There was this party between the government and FARC, and it gave this guy, Timonchenko, the FARC leader, a prominent role, which probably actually ticked off a lot of people who consider him to be a terrorist leader. So it was sort of reminding them that oh, this guy who's, who they think is a terrorist leader is like now being sort of welcomed as a, a hero and a partner. And it reminded them that a lot of people were going to get amnesty. So it, it came off as sort of premature and, and, you know, sort of ironically, while the fiesta was meant to build momentum for yes, uh, it may have turned people off enough for no to gain traction. And this may be a lesson for future leaders who wish to use a referendum to pass initiatives. And if some, you know, some future leaders are listening to this podcast, that uh, that would please me very much. So pay attention, those of you guys with political and... Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Don't blow it. We can expand this analysis further to understand some other stuff that's going on with referenda around the world. Of course, the Brexit case comes to mind, and we actually just recently found out that Scotland is probably going to decide to reopen its referendum for independence uh, now that Brexit is planning to Brexit, or sorry, Britain is planning to Brexit. Um, and so if we go back to that spiral of science, silence and the social factors, in the United Kingdom, there's actually a thing called the shy Tory theory. So one of the ways that Nate Silver kind of bloodied his nose a little bit was on 2014, 2015, he, along with a whole lot of other people, predicted that Labour would do pretty well uh, and that the Tories would be in trouble, the Tories being the Conservative Party. And it turns out that the Tories got a majority. And some of that was due to some like weird warbles uh, throughout the districting of the United Kingdom. Turns out they didn't get a majority of votes, but they got a majority of seats anyway. Um, but this actually has happened pretty consistently. Like since 1992, the Tories tend to do better than their polling. And it's one of those things that the pollsters try to adjust for this factor, but then the Tories still keep doing better than the polls are doing. So there's this thing called shy Tory factor. And it's a theory that Tories are shy about being Tories because it's a bit socially awkward, in particular if they're in regions that are, again, heavily urbanized or something like that. Um, so they just won't admit, even to pollsters, that they are Tories or that they are voting Tory. And so there could be this general thing going on that if popular media, and in particular left-wing media, as it tends to have a little bit more like sense of authority or legitimacy than a lot of the right-wing media, um, so it could be a thing that, in particular, when popular media is very against something, supporters of that something will lie about their support, even in polls. And so, of course, Brexit was one of those things where the popular media was very against it. Um, and so the people supporting Brexit may have just not admitted it before they went out to vote. Yeah, so there are all these factors that can lead to a poll being biased one way or another, as we've now seen with a couple of very recent big deal referendums. And while we want to spend part of the show talking about the results of some recent referendums, I also wanted to talk about some upcoming referendums. So I live in California, and if you vote by mail or have just kind of been following the election a little bit, you will know that there are 17 propositions this year in California and that's just state propositions. I think I have three county propositions. So I have 20 pieces of legislation as a California voter that I directly need to go do research on and vote on because these sort of things actually end up affecting you fairly closely because they're more local than national governance. So is, is this a good thing? Is it a good thing that I, the average voter, should be 
deciding directly on 20 pieces of legislation? Well, many would think that direct input from the people would be a good thing, right? But just let, let's think for just a minute about how much time you would actually spend researching each proposition. Or if you're a Californian, how much time you will spend researching these 17 propositions. When you also have four judges, a county supervisor, a state senate, a state assembly person, a U.S. House, and a U.S. Senate member in order to research and vote on to be moderately well-informed with your decision this year. Okay, I, I don't envy you that. That sounds daunting. We have, we have four in Massachusetts for a uh, referenda going on. So how much time should you actually spend on these initiatives? I mean, how much time do you think most voters will spend on researching these initiatives? I mean, let's say just in theory, you should spend one to two hours per initiative in your research to understand which decision is better. In California, that would mean 17 to 34 hours of research. I mean, that's several full days work, even on the low end. It's just not going to happen. I mean, I guess in my modest opinion, I can say I don't think that's going to happen. Most people will likely vote based on the three-sentence text that appears on the ballot, which obviously hides just a, a ton of nuance. Yeah, it turns out the laws are a lot longer than three sentences. Surprising. Yep. So in practice, is this direct democracy thing such a good idea? Is there a limit to how informed we can expect the general public to be on each issue? I imagine that, you know, again, with three, four, five propositions, you can expect a relatively informed electorate decision. But with 17, some of which are really quite complex, that assumption seems a little less tenable to me. Surprisingly, it turns out the biggest impediment to getting a proposition on the ballot is... What do you think it is, Eric? Uh, is, is it money? It's money. It's money! So, unsurprisingly, it, it does tend, the proposition process does tend to benefit the rich and wealthy who want to work around the impediments of the state legislature. So, in theory, this could actually be a good thing, as sometimes the legislature is slow, clunky, unduly influenced by corporate and lobbyist interests. Uh, however... People who write these propositions, these direct democracy propositions, frequently write purposefully confusing language. So in California, for example, there are two plastic bag ban propositions, but the way they work would basically cancel one another out if they both pass. It, I think it takes a fairly dedicated voter to find that information out on their own and not be misled because there's, there's a lot of nuance in that. So... Even if you want to argue that going direct to the people has its benefits, you need to recognize that there are going to be structural issues there, too, as people try to mislead the average voter. Yeah, and it turns out that even with something that seems as simple as a plastic bag ban, there are parties that stand to gain significantly from the shift in the marketplace that will happen when you can no longer buy one product because you have to buy another. So... In California, at least, why are there so many propositions? There's a couple of things that happened this year, a confluence of factors that allowed for so many propositions to be on the ballot. For one, it was easier to get a proposition on, a, on the ballot this year since the way it works is each proposition 
requires signatures from 5% of voters who turned out for the prior governor election. California's prior governor election had a low voter turnout, so getting 5% of a lower number was easier. Additionally, since it is a presidential election year, this usually turns out a much larger number of voters, and the number of voters involved in a particular election can influence the outcome of a proposition vote. So we can take some of these lessons from Brexit, from Colombia, and we can think as well about the U.S. presidential election coming up. Uh, If you're thinking that shy Tory theory might apply here, I would be surprised if it didn't. Probably the social media pressure against voting Trump is probably bigger than it's been against voting for anyone since at least Barry Goldwater. And there's a lot more social media for your friends to socially pressure you one way or the other. So there may be some shy Tories hanging around. Uh, Right now, Nate Silver has Donald Trump at a 17.7 chance percent chance of winning the election, according to the polls plus forecast, and giving him about 43.7% of the popular vote. But there is a chance that this could end up being significantly higher. So it's something that, you know, keep an eye on the election. Uh, I would not be surprised if Trump ended up getting more votes than are suggested by the polls. Now, turning back to the referenda themselves, you know, I think that the arguments for referenda are generally two. One of them is you often can't trust politicians because they're crooked, right? And right now, Americans at least trust politicians less than ever. It's something that's happening with Europeans as well. Uh, It may have happened in Colombia, although I don't know. People don't trust politicians to vote in their best interests, so we should vote in our best interests. And it's also the case that people often believe like, well, of course people are going to vote in their best interest, and that's going to make them smart. But then you start thinking, well, what about all the people that vote against you? And they go like, well, they're, they're not voting in their best interest, or at least they are voting in their best interest in a bad way against the interest of all. And so when we start to think about the other people voting, we start to go, mm, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it's not the case that people are necessarily very good at voting in their best interest. And as Xander alluded to earlier, one of the problems with a direct democracy is that stuff is usually complex, particularly... You know, government deals with more stuff than it ever has before. It deals with a larger budget. It deals with more laws. It deals with, like, significantly more complex issues that are farther reaching than it ever has before. It is harder than ever before for a citizen to be sufficiently informed to be able to make good decisions as far as individual pieces of legislature and policy. Um, and the number hour, number of hours in the day has not increased to be commiserate with the number of laws and complexity of laws that are going through the books. Yeah, and just to be absolutely clear, what I'm advocating when I bring, you know, an hour figure to to this, when I make this hour figure comparison, is not that people are not capable of doing this research and understanding it, but at a certain point, following legislature and trying to make informed decisions about it becomes a second job. And I don't think it's reasonable to expect people, everyone, to carry the second job to a degree that they'd be able to be as well informed as someone who is spending 50, 60 hours a week studying it. That's all. Yeah. And so that was the entire idea of having representative democracy rather than direct democracy. You would hire people by voting for them to represent your general interest. um, And they would use their experience, their judgment, acumen, smarts 
to make these decisions, and it was their full-time job to sort out how this stuff worked. And the reason to have, of course, the voting in the first place is for accountability, right? What you do is you say, look, we voted for you, and if you don't represent our interests, we'll vote you out. And that was the idea of it. But there's another case against direct democracy. If we look back to Athens, it was totally nuts. So there's this assembly, and it, of course, wasn't universal suffrage, but of the group that was allowed to go, they voted on everything. And they would vote for stuff like exiling people, literally for being too popular. They killed Socrates. They voted directly on who should be the general in a war, and they would change him out when they didn't like his current performance. If you've read the Peloponnesian War, this was disastrous for Athens during the second phase of the war. Or if a leader of some sort was seen as cowardly in a battle, the assembly would often punish him as if he was a criminal. And so what would actually happen is that they would cause defections. And so it was ultimately ruled by mob rather than rule of law. And so in the Enlightenment, people did look back on that and they said, yeah, accountability is good and we do want people to have input here rather than have a tyranny of one or a few but we don't want a direct democracy in which people who don't make this their full-time job are the ones deciding on what specifically is going to be policy and legislature. The Founding Fathers definitely looked closely at Athens and Rome uh, to understand where democracy goes wrong. And they cre intentionally created some balance in order to have the input of the people, um, but also the capacity of legislators to ultimately make decisions. And also, of course, the Senate was originally created to be voted in not by the people, but by state assemblies themselves. So you would have representatives generally of the states one and representatives also of the experienced sort of career politicians that were working at the state level. One of the things that worries uh, that worries some scholars is that uh, the United States is looking actually, as, as much as people say like, oh, politicians don't listen to what we want, um, there's a risk that uh, we're actually becoming more of a direct democracy in large part due to the internet and social media um, because it makes it harder for representatives to do their jobs as they will get burned um, for doing like one thing that seems to go against the constituency's immediate prevailing opinion. Um, so it's harder for them to go and compromise. Uh, it's harder for them to cut deals uh, because like the the specifics of a thing or or whatever they say, uh, is going to leak back to their constituencies, um, and they're going to react poorly. So there's this case against direct democracy that exists that we, you know, that is worth thinking about as we think about whether it is the best thing for the country or even represents what that country wants when we put it to referendum. So those are some things to consider when thinking about direct democracy in these referendums. But what what could be made? What can be said? for the case in favor of referenda, when do they really seem like a good idea? Well, for example, if you get to a situation when, say, the people can't trust the establishment to act in their interest, I know alarm bells are going off, right? So, for example, if you want to change the U.S. voting system to make it easier for third parties to get elected, this is the kind of thing that might require a referendum due to the inherent interests of the two parties to maintain a certain type of status quo. So that could be one example. Another could be, you know, maybe when tacit consent is not enough, when you, there's just no chance of getting people on board with some sort of item or another otherwise. 
Yeah, and in particular, if it's something where you need their active involvement, and they don't, you know, they don't just sit by and go like, okay, the government's doing this now, but they need to get involved in their communities to make something happen, having them vote directly might be important. So for example, with FARC, a referendum might not have even been the wrong thing for that peace deal, because during reintegration, people need to like actively decide that they're going to, you know, allow these people to live in their communities and hire them and like be part of this wider process of reintegrating FARC and, you know, and land reestablishment and all this other stuff. Active cooperation is required. So that may have been part of the reason that this went to referendum rather than just to legislature. So here on Reconsider, every episode, we like to ask that you reconsider something on the theme of the episode. So today, try reconsidering this. To what extent should the population have a direct say in a specific policy or piece of legislation? So that's it for today's show. Remember, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at ReconsiderPod. We'd love to get a review from you guys if you enjoy the show on iTunes or Google Play or Overcast or any other place where you happen to find our podcast. Please do feel free to reach out to us if you have ideas that that you'd like us to cover in the show. This show actually was a suggestion from one of our listeners, so we're happy to hop into that conversation. But love hearing from you guys. So with that, remember, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. Catch you guys next time. This is Eric signing off. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.